how to deal with negative self-talk, how to be patient when dating. What common characteristics did you observe in people who come on your podcast? I answer these questions and more on this episode of The Brendan Burns Show. What is going on, guys? This is Brendan Burns, and welcome to The Brendan Burns Show. Join me as I interview, dissect, and share the stories of high performers who have created the life that they deserve on their terms. I sit down with speakers, professional athletes, and successful entrepreneurs from all over the world who have chosen to live a life of fulfillment and joy over status and money. In each episode, I share actionable strategies that you can implement in your life, plus inspiration along the way. So come join me for this episode of The Brendan Burns Show. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another Q&A episode. We are unpacking some questions that we have gotten from listeners over the past several weeks. And joining me is the Robin to my Howard Stern. It's Adam (laughs) Pollack. What's up, Adam? Good to have you back. Thank you, sir. Thanks for having me back. It's been a long time. For sure. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, I'm, if I'm Howard Stearns, you're my Robin. So we're, no, I'm, I'm, I'm Baba Booey. Baba Booey. Well, anyway, I'm super excited for this episode today because we have a list of questions and I want to just get right into it and we're going to go back and forth. I'm going to have you, Adam, read me some of the questions, say the name of the person who asked it, the question, I'll answer it. Definitely want your input too on this, Adam, and then we'll just kind of have fun and unpack it. Sounds good, man. All right. So let's get right into it. So listener Mick Solera uh, has a couple questions for you. Um, First one, what common characteristics that folks who come on your podcast, what do they have in common? Um, What's kind of like their soul level personality features or habits of mind that made them so successful, uh, do you think? Yeah, I was thinking about this the past couple of days, even before I saw this question, just thinking about influential, notable, inspiring people in my life and out there in society. And the two things that most come to mind are one, huge work ethic and discipline, taking a lot of action, taking massive action towards their goals. But the other thing that's really interesting is the willingness to take a lot of risk and maybe not too much unhealthy risk, like being calculated and measured, but really putting themselves out there. Like when I think about Jesse Itzler putting most of, I think all of his life savings into these front row season Yankee Yankees season tickets to the network. And he met Jay-Z and did some multi-million dollars deals with him and built a relationship there thinking about, Matthew McConaughey driving out to Hollywood in a van and just going for it. Like, I want to play the lead role in this movie and just going for it. Thinking about other people like that too. Um, NFL guys who have come on my show who work their tails off to get ready for the combine to try to get drafted into the NFL. And I even had guys who didn't get drafted who played in the league successfully, um, who just didn't give up even when they weren't drafted. So some common characteristics would be like relentlessness, extreme hard work, drive, and then definitely being comfortable, being uncomfortable and taking a lot of risk. Can you tell me like, what's, this is a weird question, but I feel like everybody has a different uh, definition in their mind on what it means to truly do or perform hard work in your mind. Like what's the difference between like, phoning it in, getting the job done and actual real hard work. Like where's the line there? Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking about a guy right now who is actually a friend of mine, John Bronson. He was, I think the captain of uh, Penn state football played on the Arizona Cardinals and his story about when he prepared to, for the combine and to try to get drafted just thinking about how much work he put in and also Brandon Copeland too, who came on the show. He was a linebacker on the Patriots and then Falcons, I believe. And these guys both just put in 
obscene amounts of work. Like when the average, say, NFL player or draft pick was working out, you know, go to the gym, do cardio for an hour, have lunch, then do like lifting for an hour or two. So it's like putting two, three hours of work. Brandon Copeland was like doing like three a days. You know, he was like go in, he would like swim or something crazy for multiple hours. Then he would have breakfast while all the other guys were still just waking up. He already got his first cardio workout in. Then he would do a multiple hour workout in the gym before lunch, have lunch. And then he would do like training, flexibility, other stuff. I'm, I'm kind of not getting that exactly right. Not even close, but just kind of like going way above and beyond what the average person was doing. And I even think back to my days of, you know, getting a job in investment banking on wall street in an M and a group at Lazard and all these types of roles I had. And a lot of it had to do with just putting in way more work and effort than the other person. And it's funny because you oh, go ahead. No, that's what I was going to say. Like, how do you, how do you make the distinction between like those examples that you were just talking about and someone who's like a desk jockey, that's like crushing spreadsheets and, you know, sitting, sitting there toiling on their computer, like doing that and training for a combine is like to two totally different avenues, two totally different sets of hard work. So like, how do you, how does someone who's sitting at their desk be like, am I really putting in the hardest work I could possibly do when, you know, guys like that are at their peak physical condition and doing, you know, amazing things that I'm just kind of sitting here, you know, making money for somebody else. Well, yeah. So that is where the other part of my answer comes in, I think of not only working your tail off, but taking that healthy risk of like actually working towards something more fulfilling and more purpose oriented for yourself. So it's not just working hard, but it's working on the right thing. Because I remember, when I worked at this hedge fund in New York city and the founder of the fund came to me and asked me to build out some complicated spreadsheet with all the financial statements and everything. And the, the, I respect how detail oriented he would be around the numbers and how thoughtful he was with the analysis. So I all, but I also knew that by me building that spreadsheet, it was going to take, you know, somewhere between four and eight hours to really properly do it. Like we didn't just have cap IQ or fax it and just download the financials and say, okay, here it is. We would literally build everything from hand by scratch from all the financial statements and filings. And I just remember in that moment, I think it was in early or summer 2016 saying to myself, okay, this is the last time I ever put in real work towards this job. I was like, this is the last time I ever do a real project in this company. I just knew because I had started this podcast on the side and I started mapping out my business long-term and so I just knew the ROI, not only financially, but just on the purpose and the passion would go so much further if I put this amount of hard work into something that was actually more aligned with my calling and what I was going to do long-term. So I think what your point is amazing. It's just, it's not just like work grinding, but grinding towards your goal and not someone else's goal. I think it was Jack Canfield who said the, um, you know, people who have goal, people who don't have goals make a lot of money for people who do. And then one yeah. other quick quote, I, I saw it was a meme of, uh, I think it was a boss driving a Lamborghini to work. And then the employee went to the boss and said, wow, that's amazing. That's such a beautiful car. You know, that's must've been so much hard work for you. And the boss turned to the employee and said, oh, thank you so much. If you work your tail off, if you bust your butt and you put in hundred hour weeks for the next year, then I'll be able to buy another one of these. <laughs> Like not you'll now be able me, to buy one, but I'll be able to buy another one because you'll be making me all that money. But let me ask you this, like to perform at your best and put in the hardest work that you possibly can do, do you think that you have to truly love what you're doing in order to do that? That's a good question. I mean, I think you have to be, well, say that question again. I want to make sure I answer it right. So how do you tell if a person, and this is, this is mixed question too. How can you tell if that person that we're talking about in those examples truly love their work and what they're doing? And my kind of follow-up to that is, 
you know, we were talking about, you know, the difference between hard work and, and not, do you think to be at your best and do your hardest work, you have to truly love what you're doing? To be your best, you have to, I don't think so because I think you can perform just to answer your second question first. I think you can perform at ridiculously high levels, even if you don't necessarily love it. The example that comes to mind for me is, and maybe at the time I loved it, but when I was working towards getting a job on wall street, I completely crushed it and put in so much work on networking. <laughs> your, your karma. There's karma. Yell, if you guys don't have a uh, Chihuahua guard dog, I highly recommend them. Le leaving she's that just, in. She's just happy to be out of New York city. Oh my God. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think you can really crush it. Even if in the end you don't fully love it. I don't know how sustainable that is. I think you might be able to crush it for a certain period of time, but then eventually then burn you burn out. out. Yeah. Then you burn out. Cause you know, anything that you love can become really challenging, especially when you try to monetize it or build a business around it, it then becomes work for sure. And so if you're not aligned with the end goal or end game for it, then you can kind of lose the drive to really put in the amount of hours and everything necessary. Gotcha. And then yeah. the first question was, was like, what? how do you tell if those people truly love what they're doing? Yeah. I mean, as an employer now of multiple different people in my company, I think you can tell <laughs> a good test for how you can tell if someone loves their job is when you do like a, either a PIP performance improvement plan, or you just have a frank one-on-one -on -one conversation with them to help them get better. And then no matter what you say or what you guys talk about, it's they're not leaning in and getting better. It's usually a sign that they're just not passionate about that type of work. And they're just right. so I'm kind of like, and I've been this way in my past too. It's funny. I see it in, I've seen it in people who have worked for me. And obviously as soon as I see that, I either look for another position for them in my company or just get rid of them. But when you see, and that's something I try to screen better now for in interviews, but you really have to align and try to understand what they love as much as you can and align the role that I'm employing them for with that. Otherwise, I think you can tell when people don't love their work. It's one test for sure is you just see that they just see it as a job and they're like, just kind of go through the motions. And no matter how much you kind of try to fire them up or have one-on-ones and get them to improve and set better goals and KPIs and whatever, they're just not into it. And you can just tell like, okay, this is just a job for them. And you don't want people like that. Yeah. And I feel like that's easier to do in like smaller companies and organizations. Right. And then if, if you translate that to a giant organization, like a bank or, you know, a, a multinational corporation, you might not be able to see that as clearly. Right. Yeah. Well, the way leadership works is, you know, the CEO obviously wants, you want to play that role. If you have say like a company with less than 20 employees, but then as you start to grow and you start to have teams, so instead of just like a company that has one person helping with marketing, one person helping with sales, one person helping with back office ops or whatever, then you start to build out teams. And then, so like, let's say marketing becomes its own division. And then there's a head of marketing or CMO. And then you have like junior marketing analysts, digital marketing people, right? So then the CEO then has to go from being that inspirational leader, kind of keeping a pulse for how everyone's doing and how happy everyone is and fulfilled to now really making sure that their department heads or division heads are playing that role. And that like, like I was just at a barbecue today's July 4th. We're recording this. I just came from a barbecue where this guy I was talking to works um, here in San Diego and loves his job. And the main reason why he loves his manager, a ton of respect for him, the culture fit, everything's super dialed in and people really just love when, you know, that's like why people love their jobs. Typically they love either the mission of the company, the people, their manager, typically, and the relationship, the praise they get, the culture and the experience they have. And so I think, for example, like with banks, obviously, at least some of our experiences that we've joked around have been kind of the opposite of that. It's just straight grinding, straight money, wealth creation, uh, low culture, you know, a lot of attacks, low self-esteem stuff, all that stuff. And so I think in a healthy organization, it's, making sure that the, if you're scaling beyond the point where the CEO can keep a pulse on everyone, 
you're now starting to have to really pour into your leaders and making sure that they're then doing it on your behalf. So you have a wider reach. That's powerful stuff. All right, man. <laughs> Write that down. Um, <laughs> um, all right. So in the interest of time, let's move on to like the, the next question. And if, uh, if we want to come back to that, we can. So, um, Kirk Wagoner, um, a listener is, is asking about overcoming fear. So his question is, do you have any self soothing exercises that you do that take maybe less than 20 seconds, something really short, uh, to overcome fear of getting started things like breathing, tapping or anything like that? He says he's tried a few things, but he never really saw any kind of results. So are there, are there anything, is there anything that you've done that, that might help in those kind of getting started, overcoming that barricade of fear? Yeah, I'll come back to the getting started piece in a second. I just want to share that one thing that has really been a game changer in my life in terms of overcoming fear and leaning into doing things I never thought I'd be able to was getting support from other people who believed in me and who had done the things that I thought I could never do myself. Mm -hmm. Like I, there were a couple different moments over the past year or two where no way I would be able to do this thing. One of them was actually quitting not only pornography, but quitting all masturbation and going over a year without doing that. I never ever in a bajillion years thought that would ever be possible given my past addiction and just the way I thought the body operated and all these things and having some people really encourage me and believe in me and, and kind of push me a little bit in healthy ways. I would say it was one of the biggest ways because I, I think it's not like overcoming fear through self soothing. It's just kind of like, going for it and then like self-soothing after maybe if you feel like, Oh my God, that was crazy. I, I went far beyond anything I could think of. I feel a little overwhelmed. Now I want to just like relax and calm down after that. But I really think just having kind of other people not only encourage me, but really kind of like push me in in a healthy way. Just like, you know, there's a video I saw on Instagram one time of this woman who was about to go bungee jumping older woman and she was all strapped in and ready to go and everything. And she just wasn't <laughs> going to jump. And the guy just kind of nudged her over the edge. <laughs> you know? So it's like, I don't know why I'm laughing, but does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, it's just to me, and I might be like totally over simplifying things and maybe kind of the crux of what Kirk is asking. But like to me, right. I don't know. It's just, in my mind, nothing is that important to make you just be overcome with fear and just not be able to just open that door, right? It's like, there's very few things where you can say, the worst that can happen is I fail and I learn something from it and I move on and do something else or try it a different way, right? There's really, there's very few things in life where you can truly say, say that. So I don't know. I just think you just gotta, you just gotta turn that doorknob. You know what I mean? Like you just gotta, you, 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 nothing, nothing is too important. Nothing is too burdensome and crazy that you can't get started on it in my mind. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, I see all these entrepreneurs and coaches and, you know, startup ventures and they like, have these nervous system breakdowns and panic attacks, not actually, but they think they're going to by like, you know, publishing their Squarespace website that says that they're a coach or a business owner. And they have like, it's like, dude, nobody's going to, no one saw my website. You know, I was live and like, nobody knew about it or saw it or cared. I think people, one for sure, they care way too much what other people think of them. They have crazy fear of failure, crazy, even fear of success all that stuff. And yeah, I totally agree. Just, I think one of the things that differentiates me from a lot of other people out there is just my willingness to step in and get started. Yeah. And I think a lot has to do with a topic that, you know, you and I talked about, which I think was a very impactful episode. It's the, really the, the topic of imposter syndrome, right? A lot of people 
a lot of people have imposter syndrome and it's hard for them to, to really get started on something. I know, but I had such bad imposter syndrome too. And I just still did it. Like, I don't know why maybe, maybe it wasn't as bad as I'm saying it was, or maybe it was there, but there was something else that pushed me to do it. But yeah, man, I totally agree. I, I think, you know, overcome the fear of getting started. I don't know. It's kind of like when people ask me, like, how do you work hard? I think there is just an innate thing in me that has maybe made it easier for me to not have to face that head on. But I really think it's just kind of like in the mind or the nervous system, there's like these crazy what ifs. And there's an exercise called fear setting that I learned from Tim Ferriss, where you kind of write out all the columns of like, you know, the goal you're trying to accomplish, um, ways to prepare in advance to set yourself up to be successful. And then the last column is like, what if everything fails? Like what's going to happen to your life? And I remember talking to someone recently who was really afraid to step in and go do this new business full time. And the reality was I said, well, what's the worst case thing that happened? And they were like, well, if the business doesn't work out, I would just get a job like the one I have. But because my current company is really challenging and I'm underpaid and all these things, they would actually wind up just getting a job similar to the one they have, but working remotely, making more money, better team, better culture, better product. So worst case scenario, most people are like, I'm never going to start because they're so scared of something bad happening. But when you actually write it all out, worst case scenario, they have a way better job than they currently have. So worst case scenario is actually better than their current life. Yeah. And I don't want to sound like dismissive or impolite or anything in part of the question, but I, I just, in my personal opinion, and you could think differently, like, I don't think like, like doing routines, like breathing, tapping, you know, things like that are really going to help, right? They're just kind of adding more superstition and like kind of making it a bigger deal than it has to be um, when you start doing things like that. And I could be totally off base there. It's just kind of how I see it. No, I agree. I, I don't think, um, you know, you're ritualizing it, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I don't think that it's like, you know, someone's going to tap on their forehead for three minutes a day and then like they're going to then go start a business or something. I think the other big thing, obviously, which kind of goes back to what I was saying around having people kind of encouraging you or even pushing you into stuff is again, just surrounding yourself with bolder people. Yeah. You know, yeah, like I, I always, I always, every six months to a year, I, I have to look around, look to my left, look to my right, look in front of me and, and see who I'm hanging out with. And I, consistently see people that don't challenge me and that honestly it's just not good for me to be in those environments where I then become like codependent people pleaser taking care of them getting into conflict and drama with friends which you know and then I'm just like oh okay so subconsciously the pattern of again continuing to surround myself with people that I'm further along then or they make me feel safe in the wrong ways and the wrong reasons and then I have to kind of again be proactive to then push myself into situations with people further along than me who challenge me and rise me up. So I think a lot of times people don't surround themselves with people further along than them because it's either like unsafe or uncomfortable or it's going to expose holes or things that they want in their life that they don't have yet. Uh, so I, I think, again, always taking inventory on who you're spending your most time with is really important too for that. Yeah. And I guess to, for the next part of his question, right? Like what, what if you have like a lot of negative self-talk going on? Like, how do you, how do you push through that and, and put into action the things that you were just kind of laying out? Everyone has to deal with that. Everyone deals with that and everyone has to do the same thing, which is you literally have to reprogram your mind. Every person has inner self-doubt, self-critic, those voices in the head, the imposter syndrome, the shame, you're not good enough, the fear, this won't work out. Every day, consistently, from the minute you wake up, listening to things, encouraging people, affirmations, talks, messages, sermons, whatever gets it for you. But we literally have to wake up every morning and just wash our mind clean and wash out those negative self-talks and replace them with, you are good enough, you can do this, you are worthy, you are loved, you are powerful, you are bold. And again, whether it's affirmations, reading books, the Bible, you know, pump up messages, whatever we have. That's everyone. I do that too. Like everyone has this negative self-talk, this, this voice in our head, this doubt, this inner critic, we all have that. And it's just, most people don't even realize what's being said. Be 
intentional about seeing what's actually going through your head, getting it on paper or bringing it to the forefront and then reprogramming it. We literally have to reprogram our mind every day, take every thought captive, look at that, be super intentional about that. Everyone has that. And we all have to just really press into that and, and reprogram the way we think and the thoughts that continuously flow through our mind. Yeah. It's like interesting how everybody's so different. I'm thinking like when you were saying like words of affirmation, I like, <laughs> I went back to like this, this thing, we, my, my fiance and I did out of a like magazine, like our love language. Right. And then we found out that mine was words of affirmation and hers was receiving gifts. <laughs> so it's like, everybody's different. Right. It's like, it's the way it's the way you feel better about the situation, how you're going to feel better, whether that's telling yourself, you know, every morning, washing yourself clean, like you said, you know, I can do this, I am good enough, you know, that's how you're going to get rid of those thoughts. Yeah, I mean, when they say, how do we get rid of negative self-talk, if that's the question, it's being really proactive, you know, it's, it's, it's yeah. calling them into, it's really just calling them into question, being aware of what's being said and, and just really going after it every day, every hour of every day. Just, and I think as you get bigger and more successful, the voices get louder because you have more now. And then the voices are saying like, well, you may have deserved a little, but you don't deserve this. Or who are you to be at this level now? And constantly imposter syndrome, you know, not good enough, shame, fear, self-worth, all that stuff. Every person consistently we, we got to go after that and keep our mind clean and fresh and keep the thoughts very positive and very encouraging. And that's, you know, what you're doing in your practice, in your own time for personal development, who you're surrounding yourself with, what other people are speaking into you. I see this so often with some of the entrepreneurs and people that I coach where, you know, their families bring in this ridiculous negative energy of like, you know, so like I have a client who, you know, and I'll help part of my coaching sometimes is reprogramming their negative self-talk into positivity. And then they go out and then they're excited and encouraged. And then they go spend an hour with their mom or their grandma and they come back and they're like, I can never do this. Like nobody could ever get a client. And I'm like, whose voice is that? And they're like, it's my mom's. Yeah. You know? And so it's not only you constantly reprogramming your brain, but who we spend our time with is also going to influence the thoughts that go through our head. So again, you know, the critical importance of surrounding yourself with encouraging people in your own life, your personal life, your friendships, your support system, masterminds, friends, all that stuff, even your spouse. You know how many entrepreneurs I've coached where, you know, I see on the one hand, the spouse who says, dude, I totally believe in you. We'll mortgage our home. Like I, you can do anything. Like, don't worry about the money. Just like f do what you love. I'm behind you hundred percent versus on the other hand, it's like, you loser, get a real job. When are you actually going to make money? This isn't real, but like, think about how much that can also impact you. Absolutely. A hundred percent. Yeah. Um, so Kirk has one last question and it has to do with building connections with people. So what are ways to build a whole connection with people? Like, in terms of having a well-rounded emotional, spiritual, and physical connection, as opposed to just like sexual attractiveness. <laughs> you well, we went to college together and I feel like the way it worked at Cornell was you go out, you get really drunk, um, you have sex with someone. And then the next day you roll over and you're like, Hey, can I take you out on a date this weekend? <laughs> Like the exact yeah. opposite way of how you're supposed to. And do. then you walk downstairs and your whole like front or your whole first floor is covered in sand for Tahiti. ZB <laughs> Tahiti. Oh my God. <laughs> I mean, you, you answer this one first. Did you, when did you get engaged? I got engaged in April. Congratulations, yeah. man. Thanks. <laughs> Yeah, we're, we're thrilled. Um, yeah, it's, it's been a long time coming. We've been together for six years, six whole years. Wow. So, so I feel so like that's would, like longer than the average, like relationship before getting engaged. For sure. Yeah. Well, so what would you say? How, how do you build a whole connection, emotional, spiritual, and physical, not just sexual? Um, 
I don't know if I'm the right guy to ask that question because I have a hard time living with myself. So <laughs> let alone other people, but I don't know. It was for us, the key was just good communication, always being on the same page. Like we're two completely different people. Um, but if you have like very clear, concise communication of what you want, what your goals are, you know, how you want, you know, things to be done. I feel like that's how you can really grow together as different people. And for us, like we, we moved in together really, really soon into our relationship. So we moved in together like six months after we first started dating, which was great because it, it, it gave us kind of, we, I feel like we've been married for like years now, you know, we just kind of put a, uh, put a stamp, put a label on it, but I don't know, man, it's just, uh, it's a crazy thing, right? You know, you, you, you really love someone very deeply and, you know, but you're completely two different people and opposites attract and you just, you just have to trust each other and have really clear communication. That's the key. Yeah. That's good. So, you know, ways to, so just going back to the original question, it actually says ways to date to build a whole connection beyond just sexual. So I just want to oh. share. Yeah, no, it's all good. I didn't even see that the first time. So I think a couple of practical things I would say, and then if you have thoughts too, jump in, but you know, I think way healthy ways to date that I think would be really beneficial for people would for sure being staying out of the home as much as possible. And for two reasons, one, spending a lot of time together, you know, in public to doing activities, I think is really important. You know, one of the things that I heard someone talking about that I thought was brilliant is spending a lot of time like out in, in different situations, like hikes, like things where people can get like tired or stressed out or uncomfortable or like engaging with like waiters or servers or like long lines and seeing how the other person <laughs> deals with that. You know, like if someone, yeah. you know, I heard a story one time, I have no idea if this is true, but I, someone told me that uh, Steve Nash, the former professional ba uh, basketball player was on an airplane. Coach of the Nets. Yeah. Yeah. And now he's the coach of the Brooklyn Nets was on an airplane and they announced like, oh, you know, we're going to be delayed and like just stuck on the tarmac for an extra hour. And everyone was like yelling and moaning and complaining and whining. And he was just sitting there like chilling out. He's like, dude, I'm Steve Nash. Like I'm good. I'm a happy guy. I'm like yeah. doing, living my best life. And at the end of the day, like I'll just like listen to music or meditate or chill or finish more of my movie. Like it's not a big deal. Like I'll just do what I was going to do at home anyway or whatever. I don't know what his attitude was, but apparently he was just super chill about it. And I think being able to see people like that, like I was actually just talking to one of my good friends um, last week or two. And he said that when he started dating his now wife, she was house sitting um, a family friend. And there was this crazy situation, which is actually kind of common in um, California, unfortunately, in SoCal with the coyotes. And so this girl was uh, house sitting and there were two dogs and she couldn't find the dogs. And so she called my friend, uh, you know, her boyfriend at the time. And she was freaking out. Like, I don't know where the dogs are. This is bad. And then um, she went out back and saw that one of the dogs was gone and the other one was like there, like had been killed by the coyote. Mm -hmm. And so my friend went over there, obviously just got in his car, drove right over there, helped her through the whole situation. The family, the father was totally cool about it, completely fine, understood everything. Um, but he got to see her, his future wife, his the girl who was dating, in a really challenging situation and saw how she handled it, how she maintained composure, how she was completely honest and direct with the family immediately as soon as she found out anything. And, you know, that gave him a lot of confidence in who he was marrying. <laughs> Maybe not her dog sitting skills, but her, uh, you know, but like her, how she handled a really, really tough situation. And he got to see that kind of er very early on in their relationship. Well, I failed that test probably every like other weekend because I, absolutely fall apart in traffic and I start yelling and I start banging on the steering wheel. And yeah. These are huge. These are, are great stuff. red flags to avoid. Women. <laughs> yeah. If you see a guy do that, like Adam, just run. Yeah. Just run, run for the Hills. Like, uh, 
<laughs> no, yeah. but yeah, I mean, yeah. stuff like that, like, you know, emotional manageability, you know, anger, uh, dealing with people, dealing with stressful situations. So I think being in public, being in friend groups too, like, I think one of the most important things to screen for when you're dating is if you're a guy looking for the woman to have like a lot of healthy female friendships with other women. And then same thing with women seeing men, like is the guy, you know, resorting to video games or pornography or something else versus like, does he have like good, healthy male friendships? Does he have family, healthy family connection? You know, is he spending his weekends at barbecues with friends at church at, you know, something healthy and positive, or is he just kind of like in the basement, you know, alone, isolated. So like, I think healthy time together in groups could be good. And it's okay if, you know, if someone's more introverted, you can just invite them to hang out with your friends and see how they do there. You know, like you don't have to be like a social butterfly and have a bajillion people and friends, but inviting them out and saying like, okay, Hey, I want to, intentionally spend some of our time dating in community and just like seeing how you engage with my friends and my family and other people, because I think that's going to be better than us just like spending all our time together on the couch or in bed or whatever. Yeah, no, that's, that's important. Absolutely. Um, so kind of along the same lines of what we were just talking about, Kayla Thomas says, I keep seeing my friends and people in my community getting married uh, or are already married. Um, she's been working on herself for a few years now, and she's gotten to the point where she just wants to be married already. She's frustrated and she doesn't know what to do. Yeah. What would you say to that? Yeah, it's a good one. So I'm curious your thoughts on this too, because I feel like, you know, you and Yuri are obviously going to get married soon, but, I feel like a lot of our friends got married, you know, a few years ago. A long time ago. Yeah. 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 There's like a wave. I feel like of a lot of the guys in our fraternity. So what was that like for you? You know, seeing everyone else kind of getting shacked up, hitched up. And then like you kind of like not being there yet. I mean, it didn't really affect me. You know, I I'm, I'm trying to run my own race here. You know, I'm not really trying to compare myself to, to others, especially with, a lifetime decision such as marriage, right? So I was never really influenced by, hey, you know, this guy got married, like, geez, like, what the hell am I doing? <laughs> you know, I never got into that. It also helped that she's six years younger, so she's still in her 20s, which is which is good. So, um, yeah, so she wasn't in any any kind of rush um, until towards the end when she told me if uh, – if we don't get engaged by our anniversary, she was leaving me. Uh, <laughs> Let's go, Yuri. Come on. <laughs> ultimatums. <laughs> I think yeah, I think ultimatums are good. Not always, obviously. I saw a kid today at this barbecue um, pool party. He said to this other kid, "Give me the uh, give me your super soaker right now, or we're not friends anymore." <laughs> and the kid was like, "No." And then the other kid's like, "Fine, we're not friends anymore." And the kid's like, "Cool, I don't care." <laughs> Yeah, I'll go find another friend. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, but I think There's plenty of friends in the sea. Yeah, but I think sometimes like a healthy uh, ultimatum like that that Yuri gave you is, is good. It's important. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't know how solid it was, but I was pretty spooked. <laughs> yeah, you're not gonna call her bluff. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't. I wasn't playing no games. Let's go. Um, no, but I was going to say, so yeah, comparing yourself to other people, I think for any women or just anyone in general who feels like they're, you know, wanting something and, and especially seeing other people having it for sure, you know, acknowledge that's, that can be challenging or frustrating or like, you know, you're looking up at the sky or you're looking at God and you're like, you know, why am I still here when it feels like everyone else is over that on the other side of the bridge. But I think for sure you got to be careful to compare yourself to other people because you're either you're going to look at someone and they're further along than you. And it's easy to then feel badly about yourself and be like, Oh, well, I'm, you know, I'm not as good as them. Or the opposite is also true where you see someone you're further along than them. And then you start to feel like, Oh, well, you know, I'm better than them. And then you're starting to kind of either put them down or have this like kind of vanity or complex where you think you're better than other people, which is arguably worse. And how do you know, like, what their situation is? How do you know they didn't yeah. just rush into something and they're oh not God. even happy, you know? Yeah, exactly. Like, think about so many of these marriages, um, 
where people get married and you've no idea what their relationship is like after they get married. And, you know, obviously the divorce rate in the United States is now above 50%. So, you know, you definitely don't want to compare. I, I heard this therapist one time say this, she's actually like a distant cousin of mine and we were somewhere and she said, you know, we compare our insides to other people's outsides. Yeah. I thought that was good. Yeah. I, I can't imagine like marrying someone that you've never lived with, you know, like you see like 90 day fiance that show. Well, I definitely, I totally disagree with that because the studies actually show that not living with your partner first sets you up for a higher success rate in marriage. How I, I, I find that very, very hard to believe. Well, just Google it. Stats are there. <laughs> I mean, but what's the science behind like like yeah, what's I know the, I know the science. What's the psychology you. behind that? That yeah. seems ridiculous to me. Yeah, dude. You can go look after. But the science behind it, the reason why um couples who do not live together before they get married have much more successful marriages is because couples who live together pre marriage um typically aren't dating as intentionally to marry. They're just kind of dating to kind of fill a hole or like, oh, I'm single, so let's just date, let's just move in, let's save money, let's just, you know, make sense kind of thing, justifying it. And then as you kind of like realize, oh, maybe we're not, you know, supposed to be married, or maybe we don't share the same values or like long-term goals, then what happens is like you should break up, but because you're already living together and obviously, you know, probably having sex as well, it's way harder to break up. And so people who should not get married do because it's kind of all there. And, you know, then what happens is like, you know, it's easy, it's convenient. It's like, let's just do it. It's easier to get married than break up. Even though I was just talking to someone, I forget who it was, but pretty recently. And she, I said to her, uh, when did you know she was telling me how she got divorced. Um, and I was like, well, when did you know that, you know, he was the wrong guy for you and that it wasn't going to work out? And she was like, oh, before the wedding. But I didn't want to go through that whole process of calling the wedding off. So she actually would rather have married the guy and then gotten divorced later than get in front of it. Yeah, but don't you need that, like, trial run? Like, you got to see how, like, combat compatible you are, like, living with each other. I, can't, I, I, I don't imagine. I don't believe that. I think compatibility is so much more of a value thing than a like, you know, who washes the dishes thing. Yeah. I, I mean, it's, it's more, it's a little more. It, t- it took me a while to, to get on board with it for sure. Cause I was the same way, but I'm definitely, I mean, first of all, I'm a numbers guy and I just, you know, like I saw a money ball and so it's like, <laughs> I believe that, you know, at the end of the day, the science, I'm not going to try to prove the numbers wrong and be, you know, prove science wrong. So if you just look at the stats, it's definitely a higher success rate waiting. Um, but yeah, I mean, it took me a long time to get on the same page to like to accept that. And I think everyone, you know, there's no, everyone's on a different journey to like, you know, comprehend that. Cause there's a lot of things scientifically, you know, here's another stat that is probably very a hard pill for most people to swallow, which is waiting on, um, marriages where people wait until they're married to have sex have much higher success rates too. Like, like when, if you're like extremely religious or something like that, not even, I mean, in in my grandparents' generation, um, pretty much everyone waited until they were married to have sex. Interesting. Yeah. And the stats also show same thing with arranged marriages. Arranged marriages mm-hmm. have much higher success rates than when you choose your partner, which is crazy. Isn't, isn't that more of like a cultural thing though? Like it's like divorce is like looked down much more down upon in those kind of cultures than it is in ours. For sure. Yeah. I mean, when you look at arranged marriages, you can't just assess, I think hopefully there are studies that show not just like we stayed married, but marital satisfaction. That would be the right stat to look at is not, yeah you know, are they still together? But like, are they actually happy together? Because for sure. Yeah. I mean, if you look at some of these cultures, um, if marriage, if divorce isn't an option when, you know, there is abuse or something that, you know, or affair or something. (laughs) What's up, karma. Karma likes that. Yeah. We we got some neighbors out here for July 4th. Fireworks. (laughs) Yeah. Probably starting soon. 
Oh yeah, that's right. You're on the East Coast. West I mean, Coast. West Coast. West Coast. Sorry. Yeah. So anyway, we're on a little tangent here, um, but just to reel it back in. So Kayla, you know, seeing your friends getting married. Yeah, I think. I mean, you really hit it on the head when you talked about how you just kind of stayed in your lane and just kind of focused on your own walk and didn't really compare. I think the thing is we look at what everyone else is doing. We don't have it yet. And then we just beat ourselves up, which creates like more shame. Like, Oh my God, like what's wrong with me? Why do I not have this? And then you're living your life with this, like what's wrong with me energy. And of or like, when is this going to happen energy? And then of course it's just going to slip out and like people are going to feel that and not want to be around you. Right. Cause yeah, you're either I mean, desperate or you don't feel good about yourself. And then it's just like, it's like a cycle where it just gets worse and you got to break that pattern by changing your going back to what we were talking about earlier, changing your self-talk. It will happen for me. There's nothing wrong with me. I'm on my own journey. It's all good. Like, like reprogramming your mind around it. Yeah. Kayla, I would just say run your own race. You know what I'm saying? Like just, just do you and it's going to happen when you least expect it. And it's going to be amazing. And you just got to let it happen. You can't force it. That's well said by psychology expert, Adam Pollock. Oh yeah. No, that's really good, man. Um, okay. So now we're, now we're moving into kind of more the, the business side of things. Um, Mr. Burns, um, <laughs> you have some experience with this. So how would you go about, monetizing a podcast and this question is from bex fuzzy how do you monetize a pod yeah monetizing podcasts is there's a bunch of different ways to do it one is you can actually get show sponsors who will pay you cpm cost per melee cost per thousand downloads basically so depending on you know the quality of your audience the niche that you're in and who your sponsor is you can get a certain amount of money i don't know if it's like 25 50 or 100 dollars, whatever the cpm is per download and then you can either do pre-roll, mid-roll, or post-roll, meaning you throw the ad up front, you put the ad in the middle of the episode, or you put the ad at the end of the episode. Obviously, mid-roll is going to be most expensive because it's harder to skip those. Like, you're super engaged, you're listening to the episode. I mean, I don't fully understand podcast ads because I feel like I skip through most of them, and I don't know why other people wouldn't. But I think if people are loyal and they're just kind of leaving it on in the background, maybe they'll listen to the ads, so maybe it makes sense. But so yeah, that's... Ro Rogan, Rogan used to do all of them at the beginning. And then once he went to Spotify, they're all scattered throughout. Yeah. I think that definitely like promotes higher, like listening and results is like when you even, do you know who Mark Marin is? Yeah. Well, he's like, he's like an OG, right? <laughs> yeah, dude. The comedian turned podcaster, a WTF, I think is the name of the show. And he's so funny. He would be like, he'd be starting his episode. He'd be like, yeah, you know, um, I, I was going for a walk today. And like, you think it's the episode. He's like, I was going for a walk today and things were really good. And, you know, I'm really glad I had my Dr. Scholl's implants in my sneakers. Like he sneaks, he would sneak the ads in, like trying to really get you to hear him. Oh yeah. You know, he was yeah, funny. If you can, if, if you can get to the point where like companies are like reaching out to you to do an ad, like you personally, like if you could make it into a skid or like weave it into your podcast somehow, um, segue it in. I think those are the best ads possible. Um, yeah. if you're just like kind of reading off of a script and you're just like, all right, ad time, uh, Dr. Scholl's sneakers are the greatest sneakers in the world. Like, you know what I mean? Like yeah. if you can, if you can play with it and, and make it fun, those are the most impactful ads. And then you're going to have advertisers, wanting you even more to do additional work. Yeah. hundred percent. And the other ways to monetize a podcast would be, for example, doing affiliate marketing where you could set up an affiliate link with different products or services where they would pay you a commission or revenue share on signing up. So for example, um, I think it's called better help. It's a therapy company has reached out to us about it. And I know one of my friends more actively promotes it and he gets a amount of money per person who signs up for their service. And so it's like you set up a kind of unique link with like better help or better, whatever it is.com slash, you know, Brendan or Matt or whatever. And then that tracks the people who sign up and then you get paid commission off of that. So you can do kind of like direct advertising on CPMs. The first one, the second one is affiliate links. And then the last way 
there are probably other ways to do it too, but you know, for example, like being on a podcast network or being bought out by a Spotify. But the other way, especially if you have your own businesses, you can just kind of advertise and monetize your podcast through promoting your own services. So you can just send traffic to whatever your product or program or service is if you have one and try to track that through like, you know, intake forms and onboarding questions to see, you know, how you're monetizing it. But that's another way to monetize a podcast. A lot of people have podcasts as a funnel to create business for their own company. You can also do like affiliate links, right? Yeah, that was the second of the three things I shared where you okay. get an affiliate link, like, you know, let's say you have a photography podcast where you're talking about photography or videography or whatever. And then you can go to Am like Amazon's always an easy one. They have the Amazon associates program where they'll pay you a percentage of anything that you refer off of Amazon. And then you can say, you know, the camera I use is this one. And if you go to my website or go to this link, like here's where you can get it. Or a lot of people just say like, go to this page on my website. It has like all my gear. You can get everything that I personally exactly use. And then they're all Amazon affiliate links that link to Amazon. And then the cool thing with the Amazon program is um, for anything that's in your cart for the same 24 hours, I think it is that they purchase your thing. So like, let's say, you know, you're listening to a photography podcast and the host says, go to my website, you know, brandonburns.com slash camera, go there, you click the link. Um, and, but then you also have like a $2,000 flat screen TV in your cart and you check out at the same time. I think, you know, the podcaster would get credit on both of those things. Oh, wow. Yeah. So that's why people like the Amazon. I don't really do a lot of affiliate marketing because I have a high ticket coaching offer. So I'd rather just kind of fill my program and get more clients into my personal business. But I think once you really get the downloads going, like obviously Rogan, like a million or whatever amount of downloads he gets per episode, you know, Spotify probably captures that now, but when it was his show, you know, without the Spotify network, he was probably had these advertisers. And I know like guys like Tim Ferriss do this too, where you can either do the affiliate or just the straight sponsorship where you get paid regardless of what people do, but just based on how many downloads you get per episode. And how do you, how do you do all of this gracefully? Right. Instead of being like, Oh, I thought this guy was cool. Now he sold out to, you know, name your corporation. Like how do you do it gracefully? Yeah. I mean, I don't think there's a graceful way. I, I mean, well, I guess one way is obviously, you know, only promoting stuff you really believe in. Like you see, you know, Steph Curry and Russell Wilson on Subway sandwich commercials. It's like, is that really what they're eating every day? You know? Yeah. <laughs> so I think it's trying to be authentic like, to like Travis Scott and his McDonald's meal. Yeah. I mean, I think you want to be authentic to whatever you're promoting to try to be aligned there. But I think what's funny is most people have day jobs or work for someone else and they don't understand like the entrepreneurial grind and that, you know, someone who's making a podcast is adding a lot of value and spending a lot of their time to entertain or educate you. Right. And then these people sometimes get like so upset, like, Oh my God, how dare you put a link in? <laughs> so it's like, I think sometimes people need to just check their expectations and be okay with like, Hey, I'm providing you with a lot of value. And then when you watch TV, you see ads. So like, is a podcast like there's gonna be ads and and if you don't like them you can hit the skip 15 second button and if you really don't like it you can go find another show so i think on the consumer side there should be just healthy expectations but to be fair you know i read a lot of podcast reviews in apple just to see what people are saying about some of my competition and you know a lot of people say like way too many ads i think you want to be careful not to like over advertise and really dilute the experience because then it can just become frustrating and it's like you know some of these websites nowadays like you google something and you read an article and there's so many pop-ups that you can't even actually figure out like what's the article and what's not and like 80 percent of the screen is covered in ads so i understand how frustrating that can be but so i think you can be graceful about it i think you want to make sure you don't over advertise you provide value I do think it's for sure healthy to be able to promote something and that consumers should be okay with that. Yeah. I think, I think the point you made earlier is like, you should really stick to things that you like and would use yourself. I think that's, yeah. that's a good rule of thumb. I think that builds a lot of integrity. Like if someone yeah. came to me and said, Hey, you know, if you promote these cigarettes or whatever it is, like I would never do or something. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> there's, um, there's even a stock 
that pays a pretty big dividend. It's called Altria or something. The Altria mm-hmm. Group pay like a six plus. They percent. own. They okay. own Marlboro. They own okay. like fifty three percent of Jewel. Yeah, they have um, a seventy six billion dollar market cap, twenty five times PE ratio, which is a little high, but they're um, you know trading like five or two percent off of their 52 week low good entry point over eight percent dividend yield steady stock you can make a lot of money but you know i i thought about it i prayed about it i was like i'm not gonna buy the stock you know i'll find other investment opportunities we ever see that movie thank you for smoking <sighs> i remember it i don't think i saw it maybe the trailer oh it's so good it's so good. It's it's like all about that. It's about this guy who works for a cigarette company and like the the uh, cultural and kind of backlash that you get from being a, an executive yeah, right. at a company like that. Yeah, trying you know your job is to defend you know these multinational billion dollar cancer causing organizations. I know, right? It's you know, they, they always make their arguments like, you know, if it's not me, someone else is going to do it. I've even seen, you know, previous McDonald's CEOs talk about how many jobs they create and, you know, the positive arguments and spins. But yeah, I think ultimately, you know, when you're trying to monetize your podcast or your brand, being intentional about things that you use or believe in, I think it's the same thing with investing too. It's not just, I don't want to buy stocks and companies that I feel like are more evil. It's like, I... <laughs> I invest in, uh, in zoom, you know, we're recording this on zoom and there's a big uh, bear case for zoom that, you know, Microsoft teams is going to take them over and, you know, the growth is going to slow post pandemic. People are going to use it last, et cetera, et cetera. But at the end of the day, I do like to invest in companies that I believe in that I personally use, that I trust that I think are going to be around long-term. And that's just kind of one of my personal investment strategies and, I think maybe the similar approach when you're looking for sponsors or things you can monetize on your show. Teams is way better, FYI. Yeah, yeah. I don't know, man. <laughs> I we're know on you're Zoom, Zoom we're on Zoom right now, bro. Yeah. No. So if this was my show, it'd be on Teams. Yeah, well it's not. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's good. That's good. Um yeah. I think, uh, I know we have a bunch more questions, but we should probably save those for another episode unless you yeah, want this to go. Yeah, no, let's do, let's do a part two for sure. Um, on, on Q and a, and you know, guys keep sending in questions, Brendan at brendanhburns.com. We love getting your questions. We love answering them. We love hearing from you. We love hearing wins too. Like I have in my podcast studio, pictures on the wall people from all over the world from the u.s from the philippines from california you know you saved my marriage relationship thank you for inspiring me so i i love hearing from the from you guys and from the audience so please send in your testimonies your stories your wins um your questions your challenges to brendan b-r-e-n-d-a-n at brendan burns.com we'd love to hear from you Send your love to me too, because my love language is words of affirmation. Yeah, and send send um your love letters to Adam Pollock. Uh, <laughs> we'll get you his his address in Queens in the show notes here. And <laughs> yeah, no good stuff, man. This is great. Um, always love having you on as a co contributor. We go way back, episode three, I think it was the Tony Robbins episode back in my Tony Robbins. Day. We're going to have to do a Teal Swan soon. Teal Swan. Powerful <laughs> coach or hoax suicide woman? Cult leader. Cult. Uh, passionate coach or cult leader? Did you see the show? Did you watch it on Hulu? No, I think, I think I'll think i watch the Teal Swan uh, so good. show and then we'll break it down. Oh, it's so good. I would love to do that with you. I also want to watch. I have a lot of thoughts. Yeah, I, I I bet I would too after watching. I also want to watch the Jordan Peterson post Twitter statement. There's like a 14 minute YouTube and I've heard a lot of mixed things about. I would love to watch that and break that down too. Yeah, yeah. He's an interesting guy. Yeah, well, so what's weird is 
you know, I feel like most of the people I talk to that are more like center right or just straight up on the right are very pro Jordan Peterson, obviously. But what's interesting is a lot of people from the right that I was talking to were saying that kind of like post his addiction and this Twitter statement specifically, they felt like kind of discredited him more, which I was really surprised that these people would like not be super in favor of him, um, Mm. which is part of like why I want to watch it and break it down. But um, we'll have to save that for another time. Let's do it, man. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a, been a pleasure. Yeah, dude. Thanks again for coming on. And for all you listeners out there, we'll see you soon. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of The Brendan Burns Show. If it's your first time here, please make sure to subscribe on the Apple Podcasts app or in Spotify. Also, please leave us a rating or written review. This helps others learn about the show and spread the word to new and more people. Thanks again for listening and have a great day.